You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Our first reading this morning comes from Psalm chapter 70. You can find that on page 484 of the Bible that's in the pew in front of you. And just as a reminder, if you don't have a Bible, please take one of these home from you as a gift from Redeemer to you. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, aha, aha. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love you, may those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All rise for the gospel reading, please. Today's reading is out of Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. Found on page 847. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Christ according to St. Mark. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and to say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Be seated, please. Let's uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we uh, sit with these words of the psalmist and this story of blind Bartimaeus who gained sight, would you help us to know how we as individuals and how we as a community might inhabit these words of yours and be people that live them out, embody them in some real way in our everyday lives. Meet us, we ask in Jesus' name, Uh, amen. So I really, I I like Eugene Peterson's metaphor of toolkit when he speaks of the Psalms because 
I know what a toolkit is, right? You know what a toolkit is. It has stuff in it down in your basement or your garage, and you need that stuff every once in a while, and you pull it out. You know, yesterday I was searching for a particular kind of wrench, and I made use of it, a toolkit. Uh, we get that. And when he's using that in reference to the Psalms, he's basically saying, here's a toolkit for prayer. Here's a toolkit for your spiritual life that will add depth to your life. Now, last week, Steve Bird did a really excellent job taking us into some of the harder parts of the Psalms. Thank you, Steve, for doing the heavy lifting on that. The imprecatory Psalms, right? These are those words of anger, words of frustration, words that even feel vindictive on a sort of a negative way at times, or more positively, they feel like a cry out for justice, right? But the psalmist teaches us to take even those unfiltered, hard, harsh moments to God, right? And we, we leave them with him. It's a humble kind of prayer, Steve reminded us, I think from the words of Ellen Davis, who says that same thing, that this is a humbling prayer because we're entrusting something hard to God. And what I want to just call your attention to is that God can handle your unfiltered thoughts. You don't have to have processed it before you talk to him. You don't have to have thought about it and made it look nice before you talk with God. He can handle you. And it's important because this psalm has just a hair of that, right? Just a little bitty touch. You heard it in what I'll call a boomerang prayer, right? That the psalmist is essentially asking that these people or this person, this group that's dishing out shame on the psalmist, that they would experience their own medicine. That's really about all he says here, right? That it would sort of boomerang back on them. Lord, let them get a taste of this. And I wanna just say this, that you and I, we at least think these thoughts quite often. Have you ever thought of them? So for me, one of the things that first comes to my mind, I think of when my son was a young, a young lad and he's in school and he's uh, learning the ropes of school and he's a boy. And I had two girls who learned the ropes of school very easily, but not my son. He was fidgety. He, you know, moved around a bit more. He would talk to people. He did things, right? And I remember just after conversation, after conversation, after conversation with my son and then with the teacher, that one of the things that I started to feel was she's just unfairly impatient with boys. So my thought was something like this. Lord, if you give her the gift of children, may she have a boy. Have you ever thought something like that? You just want it to boomerang. Let them get a taste of the medicine that they're dishing out that's hurting me. May they also experience just the reality that we live with, right? That boomerang kind of prayer. And that's here in this particular psalm, but it's not the bulk of it. It's not the whole of it. It's not 36 verses of it. We have like, what, five simple verses here. And the bulk, the overwhelming note of this psalm is that the psalmist feels needy, helpless, and that he takes the helplessness that he feels to the God who is his hope. And that's the teaching of this psalm. I want us to think about these two sides of it today. So here, this opening cry, O Lord, make speed to save us. Make speed to help us. Come to our aid, right? This is among one of the core prayers of the church throughout its history. 
Christians have found this very simple praise, uh, prayer rather, to be an effective way to talk to God. Because why? We often find ourselves in situations that are beyond our ability to solve the problem. I can't fix X. And so I cry out for God to make speed to save me, to come near me, to be near me. The uh, church father, one of the desert fathers, John Cassian said, he was a monk in the 300s. So he, he, you know, a long, long time ago, he was saying that this prayer should ever be on the lips of God's people. Another uh, desert father, Abba Isaac said that this prayer should be poured out in unceasing prayer. It's a beautiful thing to say, partly because it's an easy prayer to pray. And what's interesting is I think every week when we gather for worship, we try to get into that same spot of helplessness. Think about how we did that this morning. Remember, Lewis is up here leading us through the liturgy, and he says, remember what our Lord Jesus Christ has said when he sums up the commands of God, right? And he just simply reminds us each week after week after week, we remind ourselves that what God says he wants from us is that we would love him with the entirety of our being, the depth of our being, the depth of our person. And that would show up bodily in the world, right? And we ask as well, right? He desires that we would love our neighbors as ourselves, that we would relate to one another as we desire to be related to, that we would love as we are loved. Like just, so if you dial in to those words, like truly, most of us are, you know, we, we get used to hearing them, right? And we sort of, oh yeah, here we go. We're on that part of the liturgy today, right? But if you dial in to what is being said there, you get to a place of feeling helpless. How so? You see, what God is telling us is that to be human, in other words, for you to be your truest and best expression of yourself, is if you're a person who loves God with all of your being and who loves your neighbor as you love yourself. In other words, you show up in the world differently. And the moment we begin to think about what that means, I think at least I have to say is I don't do that very well. I don't even do it consistently. And so the only words that begin to make sense in a moment like that because God is a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of kindness is that we cry out, right? Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. We appeal very simply for God to make haste to save us. Ironically, it is this awareness of need, our neediness, our failure even, that is the space of deepest hope because of who God is. St. Augustine spoke of the confession of sin as an acknowledgement of a happy fault. Now, we don't usually put the word happy right beside the word sin, do we? But why did he see it that way? Because it's in the fault lines of the need in our life that we actually taste and experience the sweetness of who God is for us. And so he could say, when we remember our sins, we're remembering our happy faults because that's the space where we meet God. We open up to our vulnerability, our inability to do things, to fix things ourselves, our utter dependence on a God who is merciful. And we do so when we say this prayer or we cry out that way, not pleading or in an anxious kind of way, right? You know, we've got, like, we've got to beg God 
to get on our side in some way. We've gotta plead for him to sort of join us in our cause. No, we cry out for a place of hope. And it's a place of hope because of who God is. All who seek him rejoice and find gladness of heart that transcends even our worst circumstance. I was speaking with someone earlier after the first service and the question came up, what about when the circumstance doesn't change? Because when I cry out to God to help, what I often really want, sort of at least at a surface level, is I'm like, please change the circumstance. But very often we're in circumstances, as we'll talk about in just a moment, that they don't change. But God meets us there nonetheless. And it is the presence of God with us in our suffering that becomes a source of joy because he's with us. And we know that the word of pain is not the final word over our lives, but the word of Christ and his resurrection is the final word over our lives. He's with us as we pass through the water. And you will not be overcome by the water ultimately because Jesus passed through the water and he is raised from the dead. So this place of the fault line, getting near it, Notice at the very end of the psalm, the psalmist just, as he's thinking about the greatness of God, in contrast, he acknowledges of himself, but I am poor and needy. I am poor and needy. It's a tough spot for most of us, I think, to get there because almost everything in our ordinary human lives teaches us to not be poor and to not be needy. Right? Everything you're learning, if you've gone to school, as you've sort of grown up, as you've taken a job, as you've had a family, as you've had friendships, everything in your life is sort of teaching you that you're meant to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Right? You, you've got to have courage. You've got to have strength. And we lean into our strengths. We lean into the things that we do well. And there's nothing wrong with doing things well. But if we depend on our strengths for our ultimate source of joy we're off track. We're missing out on something that's very true about the world. I remember reading Eugene Peterson's wonderful little book on parenting. And as I was reading his book, there's a place thinking specifically about parenting adolescence. So yeah, you know, you think about those moments in your own life when you were an adolescent or you think about parenting adolescence or you think about working around adolescence, you know that that's a period of life that's quite bumpy, right? But one of the things that he was saying happens for us as parents in that space is the illusions of our control melt away. When I had young kids, I feel like, you know, I, I can control them. But when I have teenagers, I begin to realize they're persons too. I don't control their destiny. So there are these moments in life where we wake up to the illusion of control, the illusion of our strengths, the illusion of our gifts, and we begin to recognize that there's a deep vulnerability that each of us experience and live with inside of our ordinary lives. The illusion to control fades, and it's in those moments that we can very honestly cry out, oh, Lord, make haste to help me. Or to paraphrase it, God, hurry up because I think we're running out of time. I'm not gonna make it. So I wanna invite you just, if you would, for a moment, like, what if you really felt that? Like you've plumbed 
something of the depth of that, right? I'm, there's, you know, most of us, you can't live there because it's a painful place to live all the time, right? But we've all had some type of experience where you thought, out of my control. I have no idea what to do. I have no idea how I can fix this. I have no idea how to intervene. Lord, make haste to help me. So think about those spaces in your life. For some of us, it's places of just repeated confession of sin, right? We've confessed the same sin this week that we confessed last week. And we'll get to that space in a moment in our service where we're confessing things. And very often what we realize is we all have besetting sins. We have particular patterns of brokenness that show up in our lives over and over and over again. Maybe it's even more severe. It's a particular pattern of addiction in our lives that shows up over and over and over again. Um, we readily think about addictive attachments on things that are negative or things that are socially unacceptable, right? We easily go there. We think about sex or porn or, you know, a misuse of food, or we think about misuse of alcohol or other substances, right? Those are the obvious targets for addiction. And for some of us, those are real things in our lives. But we can be addicted to just about anything. We can be addicted to work. And so we just work and we work and we work. And if you examined your life or you talked to the people closest to you, their response to you would be, you're never present. You're always working. Or we could even become addictive to, you know, on the other extreme, vacationing, right? You know, like you're that personality type and you're just like everything that you dream about is the next vacation, and all of your energy goes to planning the next vacation, like some fun time away. Addictive patterns in our lives, besetting sins, besetting struggles. Maybe you think about a relational area in your life, and very often for us, that's the people that are closest to us. It's our life with our spouse. It's a life with a mom or a dad. It's a life with a sibling. It's life with your children. It's life with you know, someone in your extended family or, or even a neighbor or some colleague at work where you just bump up against the reality that you can't fix it. I was, last week, in fact, I was in a conversation, a very casual conversation with one of the caregivers that's in our home, some to care for my mom. And in this conversation, she asked me casually, like, hey, well, what do you, this is the first time I'd met her. Well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a, I'm a minister. I'm a priest. I, I, that's who I am. I, well, do you pastor a church? And where is your church? And, you know, normal questions like, no, I don't. I work with clergy, blah, 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 blah. I'm explaining my weird job. And, and that's sort of it. And I think that's it. And I, you know, we go through a couple of more hours. And the next thing you know, we're all seated in the living room. And, and she just, there's a moment of silence. And she looks up and she says, do you take prayer requests? And I thought, and I said, sure, I take prayer requests. And she began to pour out her vulnerable story in her marriage. And I said, what do you want prayer for? She said, I need prayer for my marriage. I need prayer for my kids. I don't know if it's gonna last. So what was happening for her in that moment? See, she'd butted up the reality where she's like, I can't fix it. I don't even know if I want to fix it. And so I become this proxy for God's nearness, right? Because I'm a priest, I'm a minister. And so she says, will you pray for me? Will you be the one to what? Cry out, oh Lord, make haste to help. 
It's a beautiful, beautiful moment, very humbling moment in so many ways. Maybe it's an area of health crisis, right? That's a, a big one for many of us, right? You, particularly as we get older, right? We, things don't work the way they used to work and we just begin to decline and we experience the reality of that differently. And sometimes it's a loss that you're very angry about or frustrated about because our bodies don't work or it's a bad diagnosis of some type of cancer or some other disease. I felt this way when just a couple of years, three years ago, my son uh, sustained a spinal cord injury. And it, it's, you know, it's the call that a parent never wants to get. And there you are on the phone at the other end of the line. And what, what can you say in that moment? It didn't matter who I knew. It didn't matter. It, it wouldn't have mattered if I had all the money in the world. How do you change that? Lord, make haste to help. I feel it a little bit as I've brought my mother into our home and my mom is in the latter stages of ALS. It's a dreadful disease. So you're in circumstances that aren't likely to change dramatically. Lord, make speed to help us because you're just aware that you can't fix it. That's what the psalmist is talking about. You scale this out beyond our own personal lives and we think maybe about just the world itself, right? We pick up our news feeds. Now, some of us, you know, we all are in the habit of sort of identifying our favorite news feed, whatever that is. It sort of usually identifies with your politics or your particular view. And it's easy to use that as a way of just staying angry about someone else, right? That, that's, that's common, right? We know that. But beneath that, what are you hearing? We hear stories of wars. The war in the Ukraine continues to persist. We worry about political instability and abuses of power. We hear stories about continued school shootings. We hear, you know, stories about the persistence of poverty. We, we understand that racism is still a very deep problem, even in our country, in our moment. And we just are constantly in the churn of the reminder that we can't fix it. That as great as our knowledge is, and it's pretty great, and as great as our technological advancement is, and there's a lot of it, we haven't really turned back the tide of evil and ruin. It's real, it's there, and it's out there somewhere, but it's also in here. It runs through our own lives, our own hearts, our own relationships. We're confronted over and over again with the fact that the only hope that we can have is if God shows up to us. The psalmist knew a kind of lostness that he couldn't fix. He knew a lostness that he couldn't fix, a lostness that only God could touch. And that's why he cries out, oh Lord, make haste to help. I wanna finish up by drawing a connection with the story of blind Bartimaeus, which is a favorite story of many people. And it's a beautiful story. It's a wonderful story, right? Because here is this depiction of a blind beggar. And we have to sort of understand, he's, you know, he's living in a, a certain historical moment where blindness isn't something that we live adaptively with very well, right? So he's a person in a community where he's utterly dependent on people around him to help him get around, to help him find food, to help him with money, to help him with housing, and on and on and on it goes. 
And so here's blind Bartimaeus, and he's out on the side of the road, perhaps and almost certainly in the company of someone that helped him get there. And he hears that Jesus is passing by. And he begins to cry out almost hysterically, I think. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Only not nearly that tame. It's probably more like, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Can you feel that? Like the energy that he's, that he, the lostness that he feels, but the hope that he feels in the very presence of Jesus who's walking near him. And in this moment, the crowd, maybe it's the disciples, maybe it's others in his community, they want to shut him down. Like, they're like, stop, shh, be quiet, stop. Can you just imagine with me for a moment, like what would be going through their heads as they do that? They perceive him as some kind of distraction to Jesus. Maybe they perceive him as a distraction to their observing what Jesus is gonna do. Maybe they perceive him as a distraction to, to what, the, what they might wanna hear Jesus say. So they try to shut him up. But what the crowd didn't know was that it was exactly in the cry of this blind beggar that seemed like a distraction that would be the space, the context, the life through whom they would actually get more of Jesus. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment. How often do we view the disruptions in our lives as the problem rather than the context through which God might meet us? I feel that way a lot as I get older. The distractions, I want my life to end up in a certain way. I want it to unfold in a certain way. Don't you know I'm off duty? I don't do prayer requests right now. It sounds silly when you say it out loud, right? It sounds foolish. The deep beauty of this particular story of blind Bartimaeus is that Jesus hears the cries that you and I typically overlook. The ones we try to shut down, the ones we find bothersome, and Jesus calls those that are crying to himself, even as we overlook, even as we try to shut down. I want you to think about this. If you were Bartimaeus and you're the one crying out in helplessness and Jesus says, call her to me, call him to me. And then they say, be of good cheer because he's calling, he's actually calling you to himself. And then when you're in front of Jesus, he just says, what do you want? What would be the deepest cry of your heart this morning? What do you want at that core level of your being? And do you know that Jesus delights for you to tell him? He would meet you in that space of deep neediness. One more thing. I loved last week when Steve was quoting Ellen Davis at the very end of his sermon, and he just reminded us of her words with an imprecatory psalm that we should turn it towards ourselves, that we should turn it, turn it, turn it, right? Remember that turn of phrase? 
And I wonder, like, when you turn this around, this psalm, or you turn the, the cry of blind Bartimaeus around, the story of blind Bartimaeus around, the question I ask myself is, do I hear the way Jesus hears? Do I hear those that are crying out to him that I would overlook? Because the church, the community of God's people, right, Christians, individuals of us who follow Jesus are meant to be his very presence in the world who hears the kinds of cries that he hears. And we're meant by the Spirit empowering us and enlivening us to be like him because, right, he loves us and he's made us new, all things new, we say in our liturgy. We're meant to be those that get near those and say, he's calling you. What do you want? We're meant to be those engaging the needs of our world. And we say, what do you want? We seek to hold space for people, right, to, to be heard and to encounter the mercy of God rather than a community that shuts people down. But here's the thing that we have to remember about becoming that kind of people. It only happens as you experience your neediness and the way he meets you, that you are the one that he hears crying out, Lord, have mercy. Lord, make haste to help me. And as you recognize that Jesus gets near you, he longs for you to tell him the desires of your heart. He longs to meet you in the place that is most complicated and most helpless in your life with his presence, to show up to you in that space so that you and I would become like him in all of the places that we walk and live in the coming week. God, give us grace to hear his call to us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would be with us as we think on these words, these stories. And would you help us to know that you call us, that you love us, and in those spaces of neediness, would you meet us with your presence and love? Would you help us to go out into the world as those so loved by you, our Savior? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.